Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another round of Aural Pleasure. Oh, come on. We know that's what you want from us. Yes, it's episode... <laughs> it's episode number 69 of Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, the only podcast on the internet where I get to make dirty sex jokes and kind of call it my job. Actually, it's the only podcast on the internet where I use my own name. What? I'm creating fictional realities. That doesn't matter. The point is, I am Mark Blankenship, and with me, as always, is the glorious Sarah DeBunting. As you may have read in the men's room, hello, everybody. <laughs> we are joined today... By a very special guest, uh, one of the co-hosts of Two Spotted Dicks, the Great British Bake Off podcast on the Previously.TV suite of podcasts, and our friend, Danny McEachern. Hi, Danny. Hi, how's it going? Uh, very well. Uh, for episode 69, you suggested a particular song that we ought to cover because it was right on the nose. That's what she said. Please tell us what we'll be discussing today. Well, few weeks ago i was listening to the podcast as i am want to do during the week and i noticed that mast ass was coming up on episode 69 so i thought to myself nice and then i <laughs> and then i figured that the only possible song that you guys should do for episode number 69 was summer of 69 by brian adams because i thought that would be hilarious so before i sobered up i sent a message to mark and suggested it <laughs> and Mark was very polite, and he said, that's a great idea. Now, I assume etiquette is part of Mark's personality and charm, and he probably says that to everybody who suggests the song, and I didn't expect to hear anything more about it until a little while after that when, Sarah, you emailed me to say, hey, would you like to come on the podcast and talk about it and why you selected it? And I, in some ways, it felt very much like you were a parent saying, all right, you think you're smart? You think you're funny? You're going to smoke the whole pack. <laughs> and that brings us to where we are today. And you are, Blanche. You are. <laughs> oh, uh, so no, that was uh, pretty much us, you know, all stooping to one another's level. Um, I don't think we've ever discussed Brian Adams except in passing, which as we're approaching our 70th episode does seem like somewhat of an oversight. Um, I'm the one. Even Mrs. Brian Adams did not buy the album after this one. Uh, that was his like tone poem to Canadian veterans or whatever the fuck. I have that one. I have oh, it on you're the other one. Yes, me but, too. But wait, cassette. Danny, you're Canadian. So it was probably issued to you, right? Reckless was. Okay. okay. And the, the follow-up album, I believe it's called Into the Fire. Is that it right? is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Correct. That one was... That may have been the first time, because I would have been, oh gosh, 11 or 12 or so when, when Into the Fire came out. That was the first time I'd really experienced a, a sound change from an artist, because it was it was quite different from Reckless. Reckless was the same as the album preceding it, uh, Cuts Like a Knife. It was a little bit bigger and a little bit more produced, but it was the same sort of sound, and he went moodier and introspective for the next one. But I had it, and... Uh, like I said, it was the first time I'd experienced an artist going in a different direction. And as I was researching 
as I was looking up uh, some facts about Brian Adams this week, I learned that it wasn't particularly well received, which surprised me because as a kid, I thought it was I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I, I liked know, it, but I was sort of dimly aware at the time that that wasn't an opinion I should express out loud to anyone except perhaps a cat. So, well, it it did, certainly didn't rock like Reckless did. No, it didn't. There was a lot of brooding. Um, well, we should get back to Reckless and specifically this song. Shall we hear a clip and then we can uh, hear some chart facts from Mark? I assume. Oh, 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 hello, y'all. I've actually got a bumper crop of chart facts for this particular song. But yes, before we start, let's do please listen to a clip. Yes, and reflect on the fact that the five and dimes of Canada are way better stocked than the ones we had in Jersey, apparently. Here's a clip. I'd like to start just by asking this question. Uh, Danny, I'll ask it first to you. It's a two-parter. One, before preparing for this episode, how long it had it been since you heard this song? And two, hearing it in preparation for this episode, how are you feeling about it? I can't tell you specifically when the last time I heard the song was because it is still part of the Canadian national fabric. I can, I can tell you that on the way home from work today to do this podcast i stopped at the grocery store and another song from reckless was playing at the grocery store while i was there it was somebody Ooh. i should also note that i a few years ago i bought this album on cd because i didn't have it in my library and i bought it not so much because i'm a diehard brian adams fan to this day but because it was a staple album from my childhood and i thought it should it should be in the archives at least it should be in my library so it does occasionally come up on a shuffle in my iPod, and it's one of those songs. I was nine years old when Reckless was released, and it was obviously all over the radio. And so it's one of those albums that you listen to a lot as a kid, and when you're an adult, it's difficult to divorce your childhood feelings about it from an adult's perspective on whether or not the album is good. Yeah, you know? we get we get a lot of those on yeah, Mast Ass, as you know. I love this record. I it it was one of the first albums I had as a kid, although it was cassettes. Uh, that was the music format of choice then. And I don't know if there's a song on the album that I didn't like as a kid. You know, I would listen to side one, flip the tape, and play side two, and then I'd do it all over again. So th- I, I don't remember specifically the last time I heard the song. It wouldn't have been all that long ago, and it wouldn't have even registered as, oh, remember that song? Because the previous to that, I'd probably heard it a week or two before that time too, right? So, right. Yeah. How about yourselves? Uh, I can't say how long it's been since I've heard this, but this is definitely one that's on rock radio. So like if you're at a deli, like this, this entire album has had a similar sustain in the States, but that song in particular, you will hear it like the first warm weekend. It's in like every bodega. It's on every like Lyft drivers mix that he's playing. If he doesn't have the hip hop mix, it's, it's like classic rock. Um, so I don't know how long it had been. 
This, I was definitely more of a run to you girl at the time. I think I was 11 when this came out. Um, and this song is like not essential listening for me because it was everywhere for so long. It was one of those like things they would play on drive time in the warm weather and on the like five o'clock whistle shows on the top 40 stations. And I just feel like I saw the video a thousand times, although we will get back to that because there was a key element that I did not recall at all <clears throat> at the end. Uh, That's right. It is. A <laughs> I also love like, of course there was a Jody because Canada, like I just, <laughs> I just think that details so Canadian. Like, I just don't think there were that many Jodies in the States, <laughs> but yeah, like it was a it was a fine song, but it it's definitely one of those that I do agree that it's difficult to divorce it from uh, how we experienced it as when it first came out. And I have owned this album in three different media, so it's not like I don't like the album or him. But this song is just sort of like if this were on the CD or an MP3 format, like I wouldn't have fast forwarded through it on the cassette. But once I had the opportunity with a single push of a button to just jump over it, I would do that because I just don't. It's a good song. It's just it's too many times. I just need to not hear it for like 10 years. And that's not going to happen. Mark. You know, this is a place where our slight age gap actually becomes really significant because I was only six when this song was originally popular, and I do have memories of hearing it as a kid. The, the line about playing the guitar until his fingers bled always really stuck with me as like, oh, ow. Then, you know, I would just go about my merry way, and it wasn't until the release of everything I do I do it for you when I was 12 that I really became aware of Brian Adams you know like as I was paying attention to music at the time so for me even though songs like Cuts Like a Knife and Straight From the Heart and Summer of 69 and Run To You have always been on my radar in a vague way this is probably the first time I've really ever paid attention to the song Summer of 69 because it was not wallpaper when I had to really sit and pay attention to it. And I love it. It is so good. And I just feel like, what a nice surprise that this song that's just been playing behind me all these years really holds up. I feel like this is the quintessential rock song about nostalgia, which is, of course, its own genre. You know, it seems uh, like totally if, glory if, days. If Bill Haley and his if Bill Haley and his comments made a record made their first records in 58 or whatever, I feel like by 1959 we were getting our rock and roll used to be great and we were kids then songs, right? Like they've just always been I think been we there. literally were. You, I think Hail Hail Rock and Roll was actually about <laughs> that, but what do I know? And you get like uh, like you just said, you get Glory Days, you get um Old Time Rock and Roll from Bob Seger was around this time, but to me, there's just something about this song. The So many of those songs have an anger to them or a sense of sadness about how everything has now gone to shit, but in this song, though there are references to the way things have changed, what I've, I'm really struck by is that he's mostly just still having fun. Like He's delighted to be remembering these things. And granted, he's writing from a fictional perspective, perspective because in the actual summer of 59 uh, 69 he was nine because he was born in late 59 but i just feel like the the images the story that he tells here there's there's like a 
a joyousness to them. And it, it's not like we have to sit around and feel sad that our lives have gone to hell. We can just be happy to remember all of this. Well, and he's also and, apologizing to this fictional woman and sort of saying like, you know, it was a wonderful halcyon time, but mistakes were made and you were the biggest one and sorry yeah, and that I was a teenager like, or whatever. And like, yeah, but, but it's like, even though I knew that I was standing on your mother's porch and sort of messing it up, like those were the, I, there, there's the sadness that always comes with nostalgia, but there's something about this song that doesn't wallow in it or doesn't try to make us feel like he's saying those were the best days of my life, but with a quality that to me doesn't sound mournful the way that Bruce Springsteen always has. And I love those songs too, but I feel like this song, I, I, it was the first time I had ever realized that about it, that there's a hopeful wistfulness, if that, if I might be contradictory. And plus the, the melody and the guitar line and all of that, they're just classic and awesome. So I say, Danny, you've done me a solid because I actually am probably going to download this uh, album now because I really am much more invested in the early music of Brian Adams than I ever thought I would be. Well, there's a duet with Tina Turner on there, which I think you might enjoy. Oh yeah, it's only love. I know just enough to know that it exists. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great song. I actually spent quite a bit of time with the rest of the album thanks to prepping with this song, so it definitely was not a loss. I'm just sort of like as the old man of the group, it's like mm, <laughs> I I think I've heard this one just about enough times. I I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time with this record. I could right now without thinking too hard about it sit down and write out the lyrics for every song probably in, in sequence too because you know how it was when you were a kid before cds came along and you listened to an album so you got used to hearing songs one after the other yeah. to the to the extent that you'd hear a oh, song yeah. on the radio and you'd your mind would start expecting the next song and sequence on, on the tape i could i yeah. could do the lyrics to every single one of these songs i'm really enjoying listening to a couple of americans talk about it because it was a while i think before i understood how popular brian adams was also in the states it's one thing to be popular in canada Canadians know who the Canadian singer-songwriters are, but we don't always necessarily know how that's translated down south. Part of that is because in Canada, we have Canadian content rules for radio and television. I think they've changed somewhat since Brian Adams' time, but it meant that stations, radio and and television, had to broadcast a certain amount of time to Canadian artists. Um, So there were all kinds of Canadian acts. You would hear Canadian acts all the time. It wasn't it was common for an act to be really big in Canada, but for nobody in the United States to have heard of them. But what I guess the, Brian Adams was an exception. Can I ask a question about CanCon, actually? Yeah. Were the, first of all, well, this is a two-parter now. Uh, first of all, what were the uh, ratios? for, And were they different for radio versus TV, or was it the same across all media? There, I, 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 I can't say for sure. I know that, for example, uh, in music, songs would be rated according to different criteria the you know song be rated if it had canadian artists that was something if it was written by canadians that was something um i think produced by canadians so there were there were different levels and you know a song i think there were four different (laughs) areas where a song wanted to be canadian and that would earn the radio station the most points for (laughs) for having the song wow then you'd have honeymoon suites and platinum blonde and sorry were you as a canadian child aware that the canadian content rules existed or did you just figure that out later like how widely do people realize that those rules were in place 
Uh, I can't say. And part of my difficulty, too, is that I grew up in northern Canada, the Northwest Territories in the Yukon. And so a lot of the entertainment options that even Canadians in southern Canada, I'm thinking more specifically Ontario, Toronto, Windsor, uh, places much closer to the U.S. border, they would have had channels coming from the U.S., whereas for the longest time I only had CBC and usually lived in small towns where there weren't a whole lot of radio options either, right? So most of the time my exposure to popular music was through a daily TV show, a half-hour show that would play videos. It was called Video Hits. Literally every Canadian my age knows what I'm talking about right now. And that was probably the only time I got to see music videos. And then much music came along and there were more options. But the only time you'd get a sense of the difference is if you'd go to the United States and, and, and hear what was on their radio stations versus our radio stations, at least for me. Uh, as, mm. as far as whether I knew of Canadian content rules, I don't know if I knew that were rules specifically. I think if I was a kid, I would have just assumed that it made sense that we're in Canada, we're going to hear Canadian artists on the radio. And I probably, right. if I knew of Canadian content rules, I probably would have expected that every <laughs> that every country had something similar. It, what, it, I'm sure it wouldn't have been until I was at least a few years older that I understood. No, it's because we're next to this behemoth to the south of us that will overwhelm us, overwhelm us in terms of their culture, their their music, their their movies, their television, unless there is some sort of system in Unless place. Unless we fight back with base readers. Well, well, seriously. This is, a perfect, this is a perfect time for me to bring up an interesting chart fact about this song, and in fact, the entire Reckless album. Because, in fact, the singles from Reckless did much better on the American chart than they did on the Canadian chart. Hmm. Yes. Wrap your mind around that, ladies and germs. So, in Canada, summer of 69 peaked at number 11, but in the United States, it peaked at number five. In Canada, Heaven peaked at number 11. But in the United States, it peaked at number one. And uh, Run to You peaked a little bit higher than in Canada than it did in America. But that was the only top 10 song from Reckless in Canada. But in America, there were three top 10 songs from Reckless. Run to You and the aforementioned Heaven and Summer of 69. So I think it's really quite interesting that... Really, this album made Brian Adams an American star as much as anything else. Well, and, and there uh, were I just think that's there really were fascinating. A, enough videos from the Cuts Like a Knife album. I mean, there was the Cuts Like a Knife video, and then I think uh, Don't Leave Me Lonely, which is a pretty good song. Straight from the Heart had yes, a video, that's too. that's right. I, I always forget that that was on that album. Um, that he was like we knew who he was like if you were sneaking mtv which i had to do because my mother thought that it rotted your brain and i'm not totally sure she was wrong uh that you that one was in heavy rotation and then when reckless came out like we had already been primed but i don't know what his path like wasn't reckless like his fourth album it was number four i can tell you why it didn't do as well in canada as it did in the states and be i know that the canadian content regulations Canadians to this day still have a, 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 some of us do have an inferiority complex when it comes to the United States. And if you have rules that say you have to play so much Canadian content, you're going to have radio programmers and music bands who are going to look down their noses on stuff that stations are essentially forced to play versus stuff that they of want. Of course. So, you know, I, I think Brian Adams might have done better in Canada after 
Canadians realize, oh, Americans like him? Okay, I guess it's okay for us to be. Now we can be proud of him. Now he's a superstar. <laughs> he's made it big down south. But, you know, it's so funny that I know for a fact happens in Iceland. Because Bjork did not become a massive star in Iceland until she really broke through in America. And that band um, of Monsters and Men did not do well in Iceland until they had gone gold in America. So it's, yeah, it's so funny that the rules that are in place to keep America's dominance from being so prominent actually seem to be reinforcing that dominance in a backward way. Well, for a while, but I, th I think we've gotten to a point today where you can point to lots of Canadian acts, musical that have, that are, that are really good and compete globally. And I think that comes from having rules that put in at least a structure and outlet to play because mm. if I mean bands or radio stations and, and, and TV stations would have been looking for Canadian content and then you would have had artists saying well you know at, at, I'm sure for a while it was anybody with a guitar could get on CBC and it's not like that anymore and I I, right. I you know I didn't look into Canadian content regulations and how they've changed and, and, and what they are today versus what they were 35 years ago but it feels I I I don't think that there's the same looking down the nose at the, at the homegrown acts as there used to be, you know, with the sense that if it weren't for Canadian content regulations, you guys wouldn't be on the air at all. I don't I don't think it's as much like that anymore. Right. Well, and then there's the right. contrast with I don't know if this was uh, an issue for Canadian radio and it I don't know. But uh, there was like repeated pay for play scandals on American radio. There was like one a decade until the late 80s. So. You know that there's something to be said for for regulating it more, but that's just not how it's just not how it was here. And then the whatever. I'm not a radio historian, so I can't really say. Here's what I can say: You heard this song or a song from the Reckless album once a day on the radio, every day for like ten years. So something worked. At the well, you know, I also just want to say, and I would like to. I'm interested in what you guys think about this. I feel like that though Brian Adams is someone that we have, it, it, I feel like that in a way he has, in my perception, been dismissed simply because he is so familiar and because he did do some cheesier things in the 90s, like that song with Barbara Streisand and, uh, you know, let's be honest, like the Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman is probably not the Ooh. greatest song I've ever heard. The but Brian Adams is actually, his music is good. Like, I'm not mad about a Brian Adams song with the exception of some of the later stuff. Like, I don't know. How do you guys feel about Brian Adams in general? He reminds me a little bit. You guys spoke about Richard Marks a couple of episodes ago. And yes. some of what you said about Richard Marks applies. It is rock and roll that is rebellious, but not too rebellious. It's his job to write good, catchy songs. And that's what he does. He writes good catchy songs uh, i i i'm sure i went through i'm uh, i shouldn't say i'm sure i know that i went through a phase as i was growing up where i put away the brian adams tapes that i had you were you you put away childish things you were no longer a child he wasn't cool he wasn't at a point but at, you know what? he wasn't even at the time at the time of reckless he he wasn't even then either because at the time in canada you had brian adams and you had Corey hart which is like the canadian prince versus michael jackson debate <laughs> of the time right mm. all right mm. and Corey hart at the time was seen as cooler and edgier <laughs> and you know 30 years on it was it's clear who 
won the marathon, right? I mean, it's not because because you know why? Because Corey Hart wore his sunglasses at night. Now, if that's not edgy, I don't know what. Someone just grabbed a bag of money off at his house and wherever he lives Grimsby <laughs> and was like yeah they're they're talking about you again here's your bag of money for the week like he's fine but I totally agree like he Brian Adams wrote uh lasting hooky stuff it was great for radio play there was also a time when I like hid my cassettes and cds of his because they weren't like cool like I was the 120 minutes oh. girl in college and it was not the thing to be yep, listening to years. Brian around your friends, but then eventually I was like, "Well, you're my friend, so I'm just going to out myself." I listened to Brian Adams, including this album. No one else bought except Danny, who I haven't met yet. Fuck you. So it was it was right around the time that everything I do. Oh yeah, I do and it for you. Came like, out that, but by that time there was nobody I knew my age who really who, listened who, to or, or who would talk to it. To yeah, Brian because Adams. that. Yeah. Yeah, if you're if you're 16 or so, or if you're trying, if you're in high school or college, and you're listening to the everything I do, yeah, that is not acceptable. <laughs> Fortunately, I was I was, and I was just young enough that I was still like, okay, this song is great, and this movie is great, and Kevin Costner is great, and there's no there's no problem here, because right, I was just young enough. But you're so right that then it's like we all have to go with so many of these earnest, unironic musical acts from this period we had to get through our adolescence and young adulthood of ironic or soul-bearing music and circle back around to appreciating music that just existed to make us happy but wasn't and and, and was just like sort of unvarnished and straight ahead and sincere and as we've talked about on this podcast many times, sometimes that music remains unbearable. But then you circle back to someone like Brian Adams, and you're like, oh, right, because your craftsmanship is so high, you don't actually need to be writing with the intense insight of Bruce Springsteen for me to still enjoy you. And ultimately, is it more aesthetically powerful when Bruce Springsteen sings in glory days about his type of beleaguered nostalgia? Sure. But if you're going to craft feel-good nostalgia, make it this good. And if I may add, talking about the Richard Marks episode, Sarah said that she would still hit it with Richard Marks, and here on episode 69, I will say that Brian Adams was hot and is hot. I don't know if you have seen a picture of him recently, but that man has been fine since the early 80s. He remains fine today. Brian, if you're hearing this, I know that you're heterosexual, but what I want to say is two beers, one night. Okay? Come on. That's all that's I'm going to say. That's what she said. That, that's it for now. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you this. I knew that by the time everything I do, I do it for you came around, he wasn't cool, but I did learn how to play that on the piano because I'm no dummy. All right. I will say this. And I know everybody clocked him for the eyeliner phase. I, I thought I thought the eyeliner phase Ooh, could get it. Yes. And the, all right, the straightened hair and the zoot suit was maybe like a couple bridges too far, a couple piece bridges too far. I don't care.
We'll get back to Brian Adams in just a minute, but first it's time for another pop chart astrology reading. Yes, that is the very special time when I predict someone's destiny based on the song that was number one on the day that they were born. And today's reading goes out to Nick, and it's been sponsored by his girlfriend, Gabby. And Nick, Gabby would like you to know that she hopes you have an outstanding birthday and an excellent year ahead. And in point of fact, your birthday, as I'm sure you already know, is on August 24th, which is the day that this episode is going to premiere. So, Nick, happy birthday in this exact moment, if you are, in fact, listening today, and I hope you are. So, Nick, you were born in 1982, as, again, I'm sure you know, and the song that was number one on August 24th, 1982, was no less than Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. So let's take a listen to that kick-ass rock anthem. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, that song is so good. Okay, I kind of need you to sit down, Nick, because there's a lot to unpack here, but I think you're going to find that it's worth it. First of all, everybody knows, or at least many people know, that this was the theme song to Rocky III, which was a huge hit in its day. But did you know that it was initially not supposed to exist at all, this song? Because Sylvester Stallone wanted Queen's Another One Bites the Dust to be the theme song for Rocky III, but Queen said no. And so when faced with that refusal, he approached Survivor and asked them to write an original song, and Eye of the Tiger is what they came up with. And clearly, that worked out really well. The song was a massive hit. It was number one for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it also sold two million copies in its initial year, which at the time was actually not so common. There would only be three or four songs in a year that would sell that many copies. Um, Actually, that's still true today for different reasons, but whatever. It also went on to get nominated for the Grammy for Song of the Year, which goes to the songwriter, and it also was nominated for an Oscar for Song of the Year, and it did not win either award, but the fact is that in that time, it was more balladry and soft rock that got nominated for those big awards, so for Eye of the Tiger to break through it all was no small thing. But here's another thing that's important to remember. The song as I'm sure you're aware, did not stop being popular in 1982. It has, in fact, lasted and lasted and has become a perennial along the lines of Don't Stop Believing." And it is so popular that it has managed to sell almost 5 million copies as a digital single. Yes, a digital single, meaning people have downloaded that song in massive numbers in a time that was at least 20 years later uh, beyond its release. Also, the song has been so synonymous with being a badass that politicians have tried to co-opt it for their political rallies, and Survivor has said no time and again, particularly when the politicians are Republicans. Uh, They sued Mike Huckabee successfully, they sued Newt Gingrich, and they threatened to sue Mitt Romney, who pulled the song from his rallies before they went through with their threat. And I feel like that's a pretty good signal that Survivor is refusing to let its legacy be tainted by what it feels are negative or untrustworthy politicians. So, Nick, what does that mean for you? Well, first of all, I would say that if you feel like you see potential in something that other people have passed on, you should go ahead and push for your 
opportunity to do something about it. Uh, that can be personally or professionally, whatever you think. I mean, it's up to you to interpret the signs. But in the same way that Queen passed on Rocky Three, you might have a Rocky Three in your life somewhere. Where's your Rocky Three? And how can you inject yourself and your personality and your insights into it? Again, personal or professional, who can say? And just know that when you find the thing that you believe in and that you can open a door to explore, you're going to have some long-lasting impact for decades and decades, potentially, or, you know, longer than you might be anticipating. But here's the thing. You also may be put in a position where the thing that you've created, the success that you've had, it is in some way being co-opted by other people. And if you feel that the way that your efforts are being discussed or used is not acceptable, you've got to feel free to empower yourself to say no. Mine is not for the taking. What I've created is mine. And I think that for your purposes and based on what your song did in its time and continues to do, I think that's going to be the path to keep your success feeling the most healthy and most satisfying. So, Nick, I hope that you have a great birthday. I hope that reading offered some sort of light that could be shown upon your life. Uh, and readers, if I'm sorry, listeners, if you would like a pop chart reading of your own, then just shoot us an email at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com. And we'll be happy to let you know how to get that up and running. Again, that's talkaboutsongs at gmail.com. And now, back to the summer of 69. Um, there's some real problematic shit happening at the end of the Summer of 69 video, but before we get into that, Mark, would you like to intro our Patreon moment of the episode? <laughs> um, we are delighted to be presenting a special playlist for everyone today. This is a playlist that was specifically requested by Yena. She is one of our Patreon subscribers, and because she... Uh, Patreon patrons, I should say, and because she donates at a particular level, she is able to request special content that appears in our main episodes. Uh, You may remember a few weeks ago that part of her sponsorship entitled her to a birthday chart reading, and this week, Yena has asked us to do a playlist in which we talk about our favorite songs that we can specifically remember hearing for the very first time, which I thought was a great theme. So what's going to happen is all three of us are going to t- are going to choose two songs that fit this category. And uh, Danny, guest, special guest, I'll kick it to you first. Where would you like us to begin with your instant memory of hearing a song? All right, you want me to to tell you where I was when I heard it too? Is that part of the deal, or am I just going to talk about? Yeah, the song? just give us the whole the whole story. The first one, the song that, that first came to mind, and it was actually a song that when you folks started your podcast, I thought, this is a song I was going to suggest that you guys talk about because of the fact that I remember where I was when I heard it. And it's a song by the Pixies called Wave of Mutilation. Mm. And it's not the version that appears on the album, but it's the version that appears on the soundtrack to the movie Pump Up the Volume starring Christian Slater as the mm. rebel underground. Oh, sure. Uh, DJ shock shock yeah I was watching the movie I, I already I always when I was a kid I, I always loved picking up movie soundtracks anyway I, I really enjoyed having a collection of different bands and especially if it was a it was a movie that I really liked but I was watching the movie and this song came on it's quite different from the album version the album version is very fast the soundtrack version is slow it, it it's called wave of mutilation but in parentheses it says UK surf because it, there's kind of a surf shimmer to it and I'm watching the movie, and the song comes on, and I, to this day, I remember thinking, oh, I have to get this soundtrack. I love this. It wasn't like anything I'd really heard before. So I picked up the soundtrack, 
And the, the reason why I still remember it is because the soundtrack then exposed me to music and artists that I was not very familiar with. Bands like Pixies. Uh, it led to uh, Leonard Cohen. Uh, Soundgarden is on there. Sonic Youth. Uh, some hip-hop acts. So there was a, r- a real wide variety of music that... I, I, I spoke earlier about how I grew up in the North where there weren't a lot of entertainment options and there weren't a lot of radio options. And this was a soundtrack that really showed me that there was a lot more available out there than just what you might find on those stations in the first place if you were able to hunt it down. So that's that's the first one I thought of. Pixies, Wave of Mutilation, UK Surf. Nice, uh, Sarah. I have a whole bunch of these now that I'm thinking about it that um, came from movies that uh, thank God they invented the IMDb soundtrack listing because I've found a lot of cool music in that way. Amen. Uh, but my first one, both of mine, I remember where I was and I was in the front seat of someone else's car. This first one is uh, The Sundays. Here's where the story ends from reading, writing, and arithmetic. I can't believe how old that album is now. I can't believe how old I am now. Um but that song, we were driving around in my friend Sarah Jones's grandfather's huge Cadillac. What was the big Cadillac? The DeVille? The biggest possible one. It was like a four-bedroom. Yeah. The Coupe DeVille? She, that she had inherited from her grandfather. We would just like drive around, smoke parliaments, go to the diner, smoke more parliaments, drive around. So... Somehow, not only did she have the Sundays, but she got it on 8-track. Because that was the only thing that you could play in this <laughs> behemoth. And uh, so she's like, I think you'll really like this song. Chunk. And then it was like, chunk. And fast-forwarding <laughs> with this thing would take like two towns. So we were just driving to the movies. And this song came on, and it was love instantly. Uh, my brother, who is a, you know, bass like myself does a hilarious imitation of Harriet Wheeler singing this <laughs> song. It's like really, it's a really bad falsetto, but it was like a summer night. We had the windows down, like listening to an eight track and just driving around Jersey, waiting for fucking something to happen to us, which something always did. It was usually something involving pie at the Nautilus diner, but you know, something almost always did. And I have loved that album and that band ever since Mark. Nice. Well, so in honor of our Canadian guest, uh, I will tell you that one song I remember hearing very clearly for the first time is A by the Bare Naked Ladies. And uh, I went to see the Bare Naked Ladies perform a live show. Of course, it was a live show. But I went to a concert that the Bare Naked Ladies gave for free in downtown Chattanooga the day after I graduated from high school. And it was one of the best concerts I have ever seen. And this was the time before they had really broken through in America with One Week, and their live album, Rock Spectacle, had become an underground hit. Like, if you were cool, or at least, like me, hoped you were cool, you were into this. And I loved the Rock Spectacle album, and so did a couple of my friends. So when they were doing the live show downtown, we got so excited because, again, nobody knew who they were. It was a free concert. It was very easy for us to get to the front of the stage. We actually sat on the stage, and the band totally noticed that we knew all of the words to the songs from Rock Spectacle, and they took pictures with us afterwards and everything, and it was such a great night. But one of the songs that they played that night that I had never heard before, because it wasn't on Rock Spectacle, is the song A, which is from their second album, Maybe You Should Drive, and it is such a perfect 
distillation of why the Bare Naked Ladies is a great live band. It's loud, it's funny, it's it's uh, kind of bratty, but it's really well sung by Stephen Page, former lead singer of Bare Naked Ladies. So I will always, always, always remember that. And um, I will now just transition, I'll go ahead and transition into my other choice, which is I remember so clearly, and forgive me if I've told this uh, story before on this podcast, but... My friend Brant and I went to Tower Records for the midnight release in 1998 of Madonna's Ray of Light album, and we, of course, ripped the plastic wrap off of the CD and put it into the CD player of his silver convertible with the top down, driving home (laughs) through the streets of Atlanta after midnight, and the song Ray of Light came on, third track, and we had been enjoying the album, but then I will never forget when it gets to that first part in Ray of Light where she goes, and I feel we both lost our minds. We looked at each other. We started screaming, <laughs> uh, actual screams. It was, I was just at that age where you could get that excited about a new song. We raced over to our friend Loren's uh, dorm. She was a freshman like us. She's now married to a friend, of, a friend of my husband's. She's still in my life. Hey, Loren. But we woke her ass up and we're like, Loren, get up, get, get, Get up. You have to listen to this song. We made her listen to it. She loved it, too. She's screaming. The three of us are, like, losing our minds. And so later on, like a week later, I wrote a poem about the experience of being in Brant's car because it felt so magical to me to have shared that with him and then with Loren. And I will always have such a warm memory uh, for hearing Ray of Light by Madonna for the very first time. So, uh... Danny, what's your second choice? Well, this isn't my second choice, but it's interesting because I remember the first time I heard Ray of Light as well, since you brought it oh, up. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was just a bunch of the co-work- a bunch of my coworkers at the time and my this job that I had. Uh, the new Madonna video came on, and we were all blown away. And Madonna, despite being then younger than I am now, I believe, our opinion was that Madonna could still come <laughs> get it, too, because... She looked spectacular in that video. It's a good song. But the the, the real song that I wanted to talk about was a song called Underground by Ben Folds 5. And you've discussed Ben Folds on the show before Yeah, that was a candidate for my second one. But please continue. Not this song, but Ben Folds. The song Underground is on Ben Folds Folds 5's first record, self-titled record. And I heard it on a... A sampler, actually. It was just after I'd returned to Nova Scotia from Alberta for my third year university, and a friend had given me a, a sampler as, as a present, 20 songs from a magazine called CMJ New Music Monthly, which no longer publishes. And I thought it was good. And then I happened to be kicking around Halifax and walked into a magazine store, and, and there was that magazine. I thought, huh, well, I'm going to get this. And on that sampler was Underground. I just put it in my CD player, and I hadn't looked at what artists were on. And it's piano-led pop rock, and it was a sound that I didn't really, had had heard very much before, but it intrigued me because I played the piano as well, and the only real rock options that I could think of at the time were Billy Joel and Elton John, both of whom at the time were playing music that just wasn't terribly interesting to me. Very diplomatically put. (laughs) And Folds, yeah, I mean, we we were, at this point, we were into the Can You Feel the Love Tonight era, or like we we had gotten past that. So it was much more the the sappy orchestral pop. I mean, I've since gone back to Elton John's early albums, and and I it 
more so than Billy Joel. You can see the groundwork for an artist like Ben Folds. But at the time, mm. Ben Folds felt like more of a pioneer to me than he does now. And if I were to list the you know the top 20 Ben Folds songs that I like, I don't think Underground would make that list anymore. It's a little bit too arch. It's a little bit too sarcastic. It's not that catchy. But it... Uh, I was sitting in my my room in my off-campus house. The rest of my roommates hadn't returned from the summer yet. I was all by myself. And I sat and I listened to it. And that album, which I went out and got like the next day, I listened to at least once a day for that entire year at university until my one of my roommates, who actually was in the room uh, on the floor up above me, he asked to borrow it. And I'm not sure if it's because he actually wanted to listen to it or if he just wanted to stop me from playing it nonstop. So you were like Felicity with the Sarah McLaughlin? Sure. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to say yes. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, it's uh, uh, funny. Either great minds think alike or fools seldom differ because I considered uh, a Ben Fold song, uh, which was Brick. And I distinctly remember where I was when I heard that one and remembering being shocked that they went there. Um, I also considered uh, oh, yeah. Bare Naked Ladies, Brian Wilson. And that was another oh, one where yeah. I was in the front seat of my then boyfriend's car tooling around the village of golf, Florida on Christmas Eve. Don't ask why that was on or what we were even doing there. It's the village of golf. What happens in the village of golf, etc. But I decided to go with one that I heard in the front seat of my brother's car uh I think I think we were living in the same house. It wasn't too long ago, but it's by this uh, electronic outfit, Milo, uh, on their album, Destroy Rock and Roll. Uh, this track is called Drop the Pressure. There's like four different remixes of the song on the album, the sort of straight ahead. There is no radio edit because one of the lyrics is the word motherfucker and it's repeated like 78 times and you just kind of, <laughs> there's no radio edit. Um, the whole album's really good and sort of when I was taking my drive across country, like I would just put it on repeat because it's really good driving music. Like some of it is really like moody and good for a cloudy day in Nebraska. And then it sort of like picks up a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't say drop the pressure is even my favorite song anymore, but it's a great song. And I just perked up and was like, what is this? Like the, the editing and the sampling was just really clever and, uh, light, but then they have other tracks that are sort of heavier and I couldn't wait to get back to the house and download this album. And I've, you know, listened to it weekly ever since. And my brother is a musician and a good source for this. I can think of a whole raft of, I can think of a whole sampler I could put together that was like Dave's front seat songs, but mine is uh, drop the pressure by Milo and I recommend it. Well, thank you, everyone. And thank you, Yana. That was a really great topic for a playlist. And remember, if you would like to have a playlist of your own, just become a sponsor or a patron over at Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash mastass. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash mastass. And now to return to questions of Brian Adams. I do want to point out, I don't know if you guys are aware that he now has this thriving career as a photographer. I was not aware of that. (laughs) <laughs> I'm Canadian. I'm aware. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Well, I was in Stockholm on a vacation last year and went to this photography museum called Photographiska, which is a great museum. And they had this massive installation of 
Brian Adams photographs, and they're incredible. His photographs of celebrities are great, and he also has this series of photographs of people who have been wounded in the military. And they're really unflinching and humanizing. And Danny, I don't know how, how, how would you say that the story of his photographic career has spread throughout Canada? Uh, I just think people are generally aware of it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It goes out in the Canadian bulletin every Monday. They put a couple droplets of Brian Adams' (laughs) intel into the water supply, and then slowly it makes its way out into the population. Yeah, especially when an artist gets older, I think as as the people who are fans of these these particular performers or actors get older themselves and you know start to shuck the aversion to sincerity. There, there, there's more of a fondness. Like Jason Priestley is on the cover of some Canadian magazine right now, to having to do with Canada's sesquicentennial magazine. You know, um, same thing with Brian Adams. I think you know at some point there was a Canadian press story about Brian Adams' photography, and I'm sure everybody here knows that he's a photographer as well now. Jesus. And his, again, and it's nice that having cracked on that fifth album that only Danny and I bought that I think I was dimly aware that he was taking photographs of um, wounded warriors and that his commitment to that idea and getting that, that um, those veterans and the, those people in front of, in front of his fans and being like that, you know, this is an issue. These people served our country and let's give them the respect they deserve and the support they deserve. I, I, it's cool that that has sustained in his career. Well, there, were yes. mil- there were military themes on that second record, and he was actually approached by Top Gun producers to include some of his music in the movie, and he said no because he felt that the movie would glorify war. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Man, Brian Adams. Yes. And Shit, again, man. Well, so now that takes us, though, speaking of photographs, which makes me think of images, which makes me think of moving images, which makes me think of music videos, let's talk a little bit about the music video for Summer of 69. Uh, in particular, well, the, the, the music video begins, as one might expect, there are scenes of Brian Adams in the present day, then there are scenes of Brian Adams looking exactly the same, but in a leather coat, living out <laughs> and the... And in color. And in... Right. The, the, you know, they don't hire teenagers to play the younger version of Brian Adams and his friends. It's just all the same dudes in slightly different clothes acting out all of their wild times. There's a scene where they hilariously make a bunch of cops slip on a oh, bunch Jesus. of tomatoes or something. It's, it's, uh, it's really, it was apples. It's really, <sighs> really low-key, very safe Meddling rebellion. Kids. It's very safe rebellion. But then uh, I'll let one of you guys describe what happens in the very final scene of the music video. Um, I'm going to let Danny handle that, <laughs> but I did want to note before I forget that the this pair of people we're about to hear about show up singly and together in other Brian Adams videos. Like, I'm almost sure this woman is the same one as from run to you and she may be in the heaven video she is also they, they do and they don't and this is something i learned when i was was looking at this for this podcast so what happens is yeah the song is about brian adams reminiscent about the great times he had playing with his band there's been a you know thanks to the the title of the song the number in the song there's been uh, a theory on some fans part that it has to do with a sexual experimentation and i think brian Adams in recent interviews has decided to have a little bit of fun with that. I 
I don't think that there's anything in the song's lyrics to support that. It seems pretty straightforward. When they sing, Jimmy quit and Jody got married, as I understand it, Jimmy was one of Brian Adams' early drummers, and Jody was the sound manager who got married during the recording of the album. I think the I think the album is very skimpy. Yes. So there are <laughs> lots of shots of the band playing in like an actual shack uh, in this rundown part of town, and this woman, the 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 woman whose mama's porch Brian Adams once watched her stand on is driving past in the passenger seat with some guy and she looks over and she sees the band playing and she smiles and her boyfriend slash husband whatever he is says who's that and she says nobody and then he says i said who's that much more menacingly and then cut to a shot outside the car he slams on the brakes and the video stops right there it's it's a very quick fade to black and that's it that's how the video ends uh, what the really fuck? dark, like really dark. I mean, and even though he's like this total mid eighties cartoon Euro trash guy that was like a staple of all 1980s narrative that, you know, it's like um, the hardy gens of this video basically. Mm-hmm. And she's totally like, she seems completely not um, catching on that. She's about to be, domestically violated by this individual but he slams on the brakes it pulls over to the side and he's like about to grab her and then the video ends i didn't remember that tag at all i, I remember and i have to have seen that video 200 times if i saw it once as, as i watched the video again in preparation for this podcast i knew every single shot every single edit and i did remember that including the very abrupt uh ending there and so i, I was a little bit curious about that and so i decided to to look it up and you mentioned that this couple appears in other videos what they appear in were a bunch of promotional the promotional films that were shot to promote the album's release not so much for the release of the singles and the videos so huh they appear in in versions of videos that weren't released as the official video like you mentioned the heaven video in the in this promotional film that starts out with the same couple only they're downtown and the guy is being given like a roadside sobriety test by a police officer he's trying to put him in front of the other he's drunk while she's standing leaning against the car rolling her eyes and she spots a uh, a poster for a brian adams concert and she winds up going to the concert <laughs> There's a, there's that's another, crazy. Yeah, and, but that's not the that's not the heaven video that I remember. The heaven video now, and some of these videos use some of the same footage. Um, but the the official heaven video that I remember was he's playing on a mostly empty stage, except for when you look in the audience, and there's a lot of video screens in the audience of of people. You're right. She does appear in the run to you video. She's the woman that he's running to, or she's running to him. However, but she's not the one who dives into the empty pool oh. and comes out wet and. Cuts like a knife, right? Uh, that's someone else. That's different that's model. This is this is an English is actress. She, is she the one who turns into a werewolf and then looks back at the camera with yellow eyes at the? Oh wait, that's Michael that's, Jackson in the thriller. Same video. one. No, I'm but so sorry. But there's another one of these promotional films that were shot where the um, instead of ending with that scene where he says "Who's that?" and they stop the car. This this video, I think it's for somebody, starts with that scene. And it goes a little bit further. He actually he actually does grab her in the car. He grabs her by the chin, and she gets out and stomps off and stomps away in disgust. In disgust. And 
I learned that there were a series of these promotional films in the ID. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know why these were, were abandoned. I think if you look at the, the release of the Brian Adams singles from this album and those films, I don't think the storyline syncs up. I think. Oh, right. So, so they had to ditch some of that aspect to it. And that's, I guess that's partly why the, uh, you know, it ends so abruptly in summer of 69 because it was leading into the next, the next film for the, for the next one. Can we please get an oral history of the abandoned film project connected to the Reckless album? Because I would read that. I feel I need more answers. Surely someone who used to work on the show Inside Edition is around and can dig this up. I'm just or something. recut it recut it in order like they did with The Godfather so that it's yeah. just chronological. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I looked well, it up, I... Uh, sorry. Oh, carry on. No, when I, when I looked it up, I was actually surprised that there wasn't more information about this. And, you know... <laughs> As a Canadian, I think I was also surprised that I didn't, that wasn't in the bulletin that I received. I did not get that information. Uh, there is something else I wanted to bring up about this video that I think you might find interesting too. Do, do, you, uh, do you remember in the video where he falls asleep? He speaks about the, the job that he had? Yes. Yeah. And in the video, he falls asleep. He's painting the drive-in theater screen or whatever he's doing. And he falls asleep until, uh, and he sleeps there until the crowds are there and yelling at him because he's blocking the screen. And... His girlfriend goes to wake him up. That is, uh, that was shot in a small town in British Columbia called Chilliwack. It's a Chilliwack drive-in. You can briefly see a shot of Chilliwack drive-in in the video. Less than a month after the Reckless album came out, and several months before the single for Summer 69 was re- even released, that movie theater was torn down. <gasps> which I didn't learn, I didn't know until until like I was researching the song for the podcast and I thought that was also very poignant in terms of the song's themes of nostalgia look at everything that's come and gone as he says by the time that song came out by the time that video was released that drive-in theater was gone wow so even the video itself was forced to become nostalgic yeah very much so well, and it's interesting that you should mention that it's in Chilliwack because that is the hometown of Jim Valance, the song's co-writer, who was had a long-term songwriting partnership with Brian Adams. And I just think that adds that extra element of it's also probably was filmed there because that's where he was from. Interesting. Oh, and before I forget, bringing up Jim Valance, chart fact number 8 million, it's interesting that the week that this song was in the top 10 uh one of the weeks that this song was in the top 10 was also the week that heart re-entered the top 10 for the first time in years with the song what about love what about love was the heart renaissance of the 80s it started it i should say so all of those other heart songs uh followed in the wake of what about love what about love also written by Jim Valance. So in one week, Jim Valance had Summer of 69 and What About Love in the top 10 in America at the same time. Wow. Who knows if this I is... I have no additional facts to provide, so... <laughs> I, I have one more, and I can't speak for its veracity, because it's, it's one that I, that I got off of Wikipedia, and I don't know if it's true, speaking of Jim Valance. You mentioned earlier that Jimmy quit and Jody got married, and you assume that they are real Canadian uh, people referencing the song. According to Wikipedia, like I said, I don't know if this is true, Valance suggested Woody quit and Gordy got married. Amazing. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, Jody was Canadian. I, it's, it's really yeah, it's, that Gordy it doesn't get more Canadian than uh, old Gord. God, <laughs> and, that's great. And just Woody. <laughs> one However, last fa- 
those were also real life people. They were in Jim Valance's band. Gordy. Oh my god. Gordy. Uh, one, sure. One last fact, and again, I can't confirm or I don't know if this is exactly true. I've just heard that when he heard Summer of 69 for the very first time, Tim Horton actually threw donuts in the air out of joy because he was so moved by what That's he heard. That's true. That is a true thing. That <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like with that, everyone, uh, this is a great place to put a pin in it. And I say pin in it because I clearly we have not run out of things to say about the apparently bottomless inspirational well that is Brian Adams. But uh, D- uh, Danny, this was such a wonderful suggestion. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Listeners, we thank you for taking this journey with us. We welcome all of your Brian Adams thoughts and Sarah thank you for just being a friend traveling down the road and back again (laughs) you're a pal and a confidant Uh, yes Danny thank you for joining us today and for the suggestion we hope you will come back and join us again and until next time this is Mark and Sarah talk about Gordon Good morning. This is Soikis Peinut, straight from the Yiddish Theater of 1867 and the train episode of Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, where you might have heard me mentioned. I am here to record something called a bumper, which, to the best of my understanding, is simply what you say at the end of the podcast when you've run out of things to say. So, Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, this here podcast, is hosted by... A nice gentleman named Mark Blankenship and an equally nice young lady named Sarah Bunting. Said Sarah Bunting edits this podcast. The two of them both produce it. If you would like to request a song to be featured, talked about, uh, kibitzed about here on Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, uh, you may email Mark and Sarah at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com. You may request said song on their Facebook page, which is Mast Ass. That is simply the acronym for Market Sarah Talk About Songs, MassAss.podcast. Or you may find them on something called Twitter, at Talk Songs. If you would like to become a producer of this fine program, they have two already, but if you're interested in more, being one of those more, you may get in touch with them at their Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash And if you do that and you contribute enough money over the course of a month, either by leaving a few pennies of it on this thing called Patreon or a large sack of it regularly on their doorstep, like the man in the Monopoly game, Mark and Sarah will fly to you somewhere in the continental U.S. and have you be on the show or talk about a song of your choosing. And also, if you give a certain amount of money, Mark will uh, do your horoscope reading on the day you were born and what song was very popular on the day you were born. Until next time, this is Soikis Paynude. And since there's nobody else here, I can't say it in unison, but this is Mark and Sarah talk about songs. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.